Welcome to the Road to Cinema podcast, featuring Oscar-nominated production designer Janine Opawal as we discuss her career and her new film, Rules Don't Apply, an innovative comedy-drama set in late 1950s Hollywood, written, directed, and starring Warren Beatty as the iconic Howard Hughes in Warren Beatty's first film in over 15 years. We'll delve into Janine's process and career as a production designer, working with such acclaimed directors as Steven Spielberg on Catch Me If You Can, starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks, her work with director Curtis Hansen on the Oscar-winning L.A. Confidential, starring Russell Crowe, Kevin Spacey, and Kim Basinger, and her work continued with Curtis Hansen on one of my favorite films, Wonder Boys, starring Michael Douglas. Her work with director Gary Ross on the film Pleasantville, starring Tobey Maguire and Reese Witherspoon, We'll have an in-depth conversation on what it means to be a production designer and the work that goes into this process on every movie. And we'll learn about Janine's incredibly detailed work on her new film, Rules Don't Apply, and what makes Warren Beatty such a masterful director. For more information on the Road to Cinema podcast, to read the Road to Cinema blog, and to watch our Road to Cinema YouTube series, please visit jogroadproductions.com and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Jog Road Productions to see and hear more interviews with Don Cheadle, Hewan McGregor, and screenwriter John Spates of the new Marvel film Doctor Strange, as well as past episodes with director Peter Bogdanovich, producer John Peters, Moon Zappa, and screenwriter Max Landis. Like our Facebook page, Jog Road Productions, follow us on Twitter at Jog Road, and follow us on Instagram at Jog Road Productions to get the latest updates on the Road to Cinema podcast and YouTube series. And now we join our interview with Oscar-nominated production designer Janine Opawal of the new film Rules Don't Apply, starring Warren Beatty, Lily Collins, Olden Emmerich, Matthew Broderick, Martin Sheen, and many more. And it opens in theaters on Wednesday, November 23rd. When was it that you sort of realized what a production designer was and sort of how essential that role is in terms of making a movie? Well, I really had no idea before I kind of veered into the film business. I think I was sort of uh, like my old aunts in Massachusetts. I thought you'd just put the actors in a space and turn the camera on. It didn't occur to me until I became much more design sophisticated and much more aware of the visual world that uh, this was totally controlled. Totally controlled. We don't make feature documentaries in the same way that we make feature dramatic films. Um, and I became aware of it, I guess, when I was working for Charles Eames here in Venice. And we, of course, Charles made over a hundred small educational, personal, documentary, industrial films. And while I was there working with him, I started to realize, oh, this is how it's done. Because we built sets too, of course, not the big ones. Hollywood, but we certainly built sets. And I became very aware of the amount of control that went into it. 
So basically, the production designer is the person who takes responsibility for all of the environments of a film, whether that's something that's found and altered, something that's constructed from scratch, something the actors drive through, something they touch, something they sit in front of, something that's growing out of uh, the back wall behind their heads, uh, what's above their heads digitally is becoming increasingly the responsibility of the design department in coordination with the, with the visual effects departments. So it's basically taking responsibility for the environments of a film. And in theory, that responsibility means that you have the overview from the beginning of the story to the end of the story. And you're controlling the spaces that the actors walk through and move in, and you're controlling the colors, you're controlling the furniture, the curtains, the carpets, the stuff that's on the walls. You're making a complete statement about the story and the characters by manipulation of the environments. So when you're about to enter a project, uh, you're reading a script, you're about to meet with a director, how important is it for you to have your own personal point of view versus sort of getting too attached to what a director might say? Uh, well, it's, it's, it's a give and take, of course, because every designer comes to the projects that he or she does inside his or her own skin with his or her own, own experiences, own attitudes, own ideas, own feelings about the world. Um, and those feelings about the world are not necessarily exactly the same as the director's. If you're lucky, the designer's feelings and the director's feelings find a way to overlap or at least travel down the railroad track simultaneously. And largely whether you make a successful collaboration or not is dependent upon whether your idiosyncrasies as a designer line up with the idiosyncrasies of a director, whether you understand that person's eccentricities or not, if they make sense to you or not. And of course, it's a two-way street. Um, so sometimes I try to come to a project with a not a whole lot of preconceived ideas because then I find you've kind of got yourself boxed into a corner before you can let the project and the story tell you what it wants to be because it's a process of learning as well. What is the story? Who's involved with the story? How can I best tell it? The things you think you need to know on day one are never the things that you realize you needed to know by the last day of shooting the film. They never are, never. So it really is all about process and flexibility and keeping your eyes open, keeping your mind open, listening to what other people's needs are, what other people's ideas are, and incorporating those. But it's also about who you are. I mean, when I was working with Warren, for example, Warren would probably tell you something slightly different from what I would tell you about what the film means 
to him versus what the film means to me. But whatever it was that I was eager to spend time thinking about while working on Rules Don't Apply was very close enough to what Warren's private obsessions were that it made for an interesting working relationship. Yeah. I mean, Warren would probably say, well, the film is about 1950s sexual repression and the beginnings of the feminist era. And I would probably say, well, for me, I was more interested in working out my feelings and my thoughts about what it meant, what it means and what it meant to, to, to have a mentor, to be a young person who understands that this older person who's glamorous, exciting, charming, has money, has power, what that person can do for you because you know you need such a person in your life to promote and help you with your career, and what that person can do to torture your life and inhibit it and keep it back, and the comedy and the tragedy of all of those relationships. And that was the thing that I kept thinking about while making the film is probably not the same as what Warren was thinking about. But every decision pretty that you similar. Make, yeah, but every decision that you make is informed by that uh, by that thought process. Somehow it way. is, and yeah. I can't tell you exactly how. But I can also say that that's an additional motivation. The fact that I would get up every morning and and think about this particular issue, which has been a big issue in my life. Um, get up every morning and think about that, it gives you extra motivation to work on the film because on, in the course of every film, things, people get tired, things get ugly, people get grumpy, things go wrong, things change, and you have to have that little extra motivation to be able to continue to get up and be in a decent mood and just drive your end of the job forward. So I think that's how I would talk about it. Yeah. When looking at Rules Don't Apply, um, you know, from watching it yesterday, there are so many scenes, there are so many interior sets. Uh, I mean, there are some scenes that are very short, very quick, but yet every set has that detail to it, has that nuance to it. Uh, it I mean, just from seeing it, it must be overwhelming to read the script, to have that sort of you know, looking at that going forward, that you have so much to create. Uh, well, <laughs> what can you say? You take it scene by scene, page by page, set by set. Mm. You can't let looking at the forest seize you up. It's tree by tree. And after a while, you get a sense of how the trees create the forest. Um, but I have to say, Rules Don't Apply didn't have nearly as many sets as L.A. Confidential or Catch Me If You Can. Mm. Um, but it still had quite a few that we had to think about. And, you know, my personal feeling is that the art department, the design department on any given film is the first department in the field. And therefore, it's our job to create environments that inspire the actors to do the best job they possibly can because if they do the best job they can then we all look better too because we're there first and it's our job to set a high standard 
so that everyone coming after us can look and just get the feeling that, oh, yeah, we need to contribute to this at the highest level we can as well. So the job is both to create the environments, but it's also to keep everybody's, everybody's motion down the same track, everybody feeling that this is what we have to do, this is the best we have to strive for. It's, people say sometimes, well, uh, some scenes in the film are so dark. I mean, you knew that was going to happen because Hughes lived his life in the dark. And, you know, did you spend as much time thinking about those scenes? And the answer is, of course, maybe even more. Because you'd, it's not about what the camera sees all the time. It's about setting the correct environment for everyone else who has to inhabit that environment as well as you. So the actors can inhabit that set and feel connected to it and feel that detail and feel their, in that exact place. And that exactly. can really inspire them to yep. do better work in a way. Yeah, that's, that's the hope. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I'm curious because you've done so many period films. Catch Me If You Can, LA Confidential, Rules Don't Apply as well. So in terms of the research process, you know, where are you sort of looking for inspiration where do you find those details to make well, everything so specific in a way? Partly, I've done enough of those period films, so a great deal of the information is already just simply internalized within me. But the fact is, every project is different, and on every project you realize you have to learn something different than you learned before. And where you get inspiration is a difficult thing to know because inspiration is called inspiration because you have no idea where it's coming from. Sometimes you feel like it's the set or the environment speaking to you and you wake up in the middle of the morning and you realize, oh, um, I looked at six wallpapers the night before and I couldn't make a decision and you know, you know you go to bed and they're all inside your head and you wake up in the morning and one of them says to you, take me, I want to be in your film. And that's literally how it is. You just wake up and you know which one it's going to be and you can't say why. I guess that's why we call it inspiration. It's something coming through you from the environment, from the wallpaper, from the color, who knows? It's you inhabiting the whole thought process, inhabiting the environment, inhabiting the feelings of the story, and it just kind of comes out organically once you've you know, kind of buried yourself in the story. What would you say are the challenges between building a set from scratch versus going out and maybe finding an exterior location or finding like a practical set, be it, you know, a house or... Well, you have to kind of think about it in, in a series of different ways. If you're going to be shooting in a particular set for say half a day or a day or two days, and if the story feels like it fits in something that you can find and alter by changing the paint or the furniture or building walls or taking things out, 
then that's the way to go. But often there are things that you can no longer find, in which case you're stuck building them, or also there are things which require a long period of time to be shooting, in which case you know you probably should be building that as well, because by the time you add up getting done, paying for the location, doing the work that the art department has to do, which is to say my department, moving furniture out, changing the wallpaper, painting the walls, moving furniture in, and then you add the time that it takes for the camera department to light it correctly. By that time, you know, you're looking at the, the trade-offs and you realize, well, I guess it's just this cheap to build this thing. So there's a whole lot of different ways that you have to approach it. I mean, sometimes what's around the set is just as important as what's in the set, in which case you have to work as hard as you can to find a real place to shoot it in. And sometimes if you're in a hotel, for example, you're better off building it. I mean, we looked at the Biltmore Hotel, but shooting in the Biltmore Hotel is not the easiest thing in the world to do if you're going to be there for multiple days and in multiple rooms and just causing disruption to the hotel itself and every space that you go to needs something done to it because it's not perfect, it's not walk in and shoot. And so we ended up building most of the hotel rooms. Uh, I mean, catch me if you can, was a lot of, were a lot of those sets also built for the most part? Um, I have to think about that for a little bit. I think because a lot of those sets went very quickly, we weren't inhabiting them for great lengths of time, a lot of them were found and fixed. There were things that we built, for sure. You know, we built parts of the interiors of the airplanes and um, the stuff that's really hard and impossible to shoot inside of. Yeah. Um, but also, I have to say, every year that goes by, there are fewer and fewer and fewer places which filmmakers can find to make period projects set in the past in Los Angeles, effectively in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. um, I noticed that between the time we did LA Confidential and Catch Me If You Can, a lot of things disappeared. And between Catch Me If You Can and Rules Don't Apply, more things disappeared. Uh -huh. So they keep getting, you know, knocked down or renewed, revitalized. Um, downtown Los Angeles is nothing like what it used to be. It's turned into the home of the hip. <laughs> you know, at least a good piece of it, which isn't yeah. the home of the homeless. Um, so there was a lot more empty material to choose from years ago. And, you know, you, as a filmmaker, you have, you have sort of ACDC feelings about this. On the one hand, it's really good that the city is coming back from near death down there. And on the other hand, it's really bad because we can't find the things we used to be able to find to close that home. Yeah. Oh, I noticed in Rules Don't Apply, some of the establishing shots, I think, were archive footage. Is yes. that accurate? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Because as I said to Warren, Warren, every time you have a driving shot, in a movie, and it's set in the past, I have a complete nightmare.
because it's impossible to get back there from here. There are little things that you can do. You can choose a piece of a block or uh, you know, a residential street is sometimes easier than a commercial street. So I have the feeling that I could spend your entire design budget, budget on one street. We need to find footage. And that's what we did and we were lucky and finding a lot of it. I was surprised at how much actually we were able to scrounge up and we were able to, you know, rework it so it matched perfectly and with the rest of the film and do little alterations as necessary. But the really funny thing was the minute that our stock footage researcher, Deborah Ricketts, came back with that footage of the black Chrysler driving down Hollywood Boulevard, I went, I built those Christmas trees on LA Confidential. <laughs> I recognized it right away because they were the typical old 50s Hollywood Boulevard Christmas decorations, big Christmas trees with white balls on the metal trees. And we built a couple of them and attached them to the uh, telephone poles, lighting poles, street lamp poles, um, in LA Confidential in front of the uh, theater, the pot bust movie theater. So I recognized right away. Whoa! <laughs> was that uh, was it also archive or stock footage? The uh, the shots of the car from behind and it's yeah. That's all. That's all found and reworked stuff. Okay. By and large, it seemed almost like brand new. That uh, yeah, that it area. does. It was done really well. It's done painstakingly. Yeah. <laughs> painstakingly. <laughs> I mean, Warren worked really hard to find the right footage and we amassed quite a lot of it and of course in the end we didn't use a whole lot of it we used the best most select bits uh, when you first read a screenplay are you ever making visual notes because as you know many people read screenplays you know they're very uh, vague sometimes in terms of description so there's That's a lot good. of gaps to be sort of we like in. vague scripts <laughs> <laughs> you prefer that as opposed to I, uh, descriptions I totally prefer scripts with that don't tell me what I, I as a designer, I'm supposed to do or think or feel. Uh, if you tell me exactly, you know, what the thoughts are about the character comes in the door and then he works here and then he goes over to there and he moves that, that, that we can accommodate. I can take that, internalize what those movements are that the characters have to make in a set and either find something or build something to accommodate that. But if you're telling me it has to be green and blue and it has white detail here and it's got this in it and that in it, then at a certain point I just start thinking, wait, 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 wait. You know, that's writing. I have to be responsible for physical reality. The physical reality I'm going to turn up is not necessarily going to be exactly what's been written. What's written is a blueprint, the same as what I draw when we make the ground plans for the set. That's a blueprint only. That evolves with everyone else's contributions over the course of making the film. Uh, but you mentioned just now that you, that you draw the sets. Um, I'm curious, you know, when you're putting together a project in pre-production, do you have sort of a book that you organize with each set for each scene? Or? We, yeah, we go set by set, and we don't always have time to keep precise books, but we keep records of the visual inspirations, 
uh, the research, the ground plans as they work themselves out over a course of time, the elevations, um, the early construction views, the construction and paint and decorating process and making it. We keep records of all of that because we've all found that if you save something and it goes into the great hungry maw of the studios, you'll never see it again. Even they can't find what they've saved. <laughs> Even through the, uh, with the Academy Library, they have some... The Academy Library is much better at saving that uh. stuff. <laughs> <laughs> this is why we like the Academy Library. <laughs> uh, I was wondering, so one of my favorite uh, scenes in the film toward the end is uh, you know, Warren Beatty is in the bed as Howard Hughes, and uh, you know he's sort of called to speak to the public about this book that's being written about him. I just, I found that whole setup where he's in the bed with the, the phone and everything. Were you part of the process of finding that? Well, that was all bit? built, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we laid it out in a way that seemed to satisfy Warren. Warren wanted to feel that he was backed into a corner with the bed. Um, and so we laid the room out so he could be backed into the corner with the bed. And then we had to make a motorized track for the curtain around the bed because he wanted to be hidden but be seen briefly and wanted to be able to make the curtain move on cue. And he wanted a desk set up so that it would look, you know, a mobile desk, like a, like a hospital eating tray bed that moves around in front of the person who's in the bed. Um, we had to organize one of those and figure out what had to be on it and how it had to move and we worked very carefully with our uh, special effects guy to make sure that that was created correctly and looked proper and would work correctly because in theory the idea is that like in the hospital bed itself, Hughes had his engineers in Playa Vista, his aircraft engineers in Playa Vista cobble this kind of stuff together for him. Even like that mic that he had on? You probably, little, uh, yes. Yeah. That was the theory that that's how, that's how it would work. Mm -hmm. And the hospital bed that he was in, that he says, oh, you know, I invented this. That's based on uh, some amount of fact. And our special effects guy, what we said to him was, well, if it's a bunch of aircraft engineers and they're rummaging around in the, the par spare parts back there at the aircraft engineering factory, um, what would they look like? And so we started looking at, you know, airplane spare parts and getting some inspiration from the shape and the materials and the design and the structural elements that you might see in something like that. You mentioned before that when you're making a set, you don't always think about how it's being lit, it's more about the environment. Um, but in the case of Rules Don't Apply, where there are some scenes with uh, a specific amount of shadows or sort of Warren Beatty being introduced, well, are you thinking about sort of how that environment plays into that narrative? It's always important as a designer to work with the camera department and figure out what lighting they might need to do their job. I mean, we of course, are always thinking about the practical lights that we have to have everywhere. 
and sometimes the camera department will come to us and we'll sit down with over the ground plans and we'll say, well, we think it would be better if you could find the light fixtures that would be practical that hang from the ceiling from which we can light the set. And then we know what to do because it's a process of working together to get the ultimately best result possible. So it's always, always taking into consideration who's the camera person and what do they need to do their job from us as best they can. Um, we mentioned before, you know, a lot of directors who you've been on the same page with and who are great collaborations. Um, I know you've worked with Clint Eastwood, Curtis Hansen, uh, Brian De Palma early on. Um, you know, what to you looking back are sort of some of those projects where you feel like you did your, your best work or you really feel exemplifies uh, what you can do? Well, I think Wonder Boys and LA Confidential were really great working experiences for me because I, again, I, I, I understood Curtis instinct, instinctually. I understood who he was and what he wanted and what his interests were. And he would not tell me too much. He'd just tell me a little bit and then I'd go off and do something and I'd come back and I'd say, this is what I've been thinking. And for example, when, when we found the, um, found the, the um, Potbust movie theater, I'd been looking all over Southern California, nothing really fit the bill. And I'd come back with a friend and we were driving kind of by accident on Hollywood Boulevard one night and I started yelling at him as we passed the tower theater, that tower, which was an old post office from the deck where I started yelling at my friend, stop the car, stop the car. And I jumped out and I ran up because there was a T intersection right at what I knew I could make the theater out of. And I called Curtis the next morning and said, I found the theater. Oh, what is it? Describe it. He says, Oh, that sounds good. And I said, So, Curtis, I can't find the motel. We're going to have to build that. I cannot find anything but photographs for this. I, I just can't. And uh, because I had driven from San Bernardino to Ventura along old Route 66 and found about two motels that were dated from the era, and they were fully occupied by um, agricultural workers, essentially. And so I said, well, I have to get some new ideas about what we're going to do with this. And so I went back in my mind to the first day I came to Los Angeles and drove from the airport to Hollywood through the Stalker oil fields. And I thought, you know, for me, that's a primal image of Los Angeles never seen what kind of city is this with oil fields in the middle of it. So I called Curtis and I said, I think I should look in the oil fields for a place to put the motel. And he said, yeah, that's a really good idea. So we were very simpatico in that way. Um, working with Clint Eastwood was very different because he's very easy to work with in a way. Um, and... Uh, it was a different kind of, you know, romantic story that was being told. And when I first sat down and talked with Clint about it, I said I thought that the story was about what happens if you scratch anybody's surface 
carefully and deeply enough, what you will learn is that everyone on some level is looking for a grand passion in life. And that's not necessarily a physical grand passion. It can be a metaphysical grand passion. Something that motivates you, something you love, something that makes you get up in the morning and be happy and attack the world anew every day. And that seemed to make sense to him. And that's how I approached the project. I wasn't going to look down on it because it was a romantic, so-called trashy, pulpy novel. You couldn't look down on a story that had moved so many people. You have to find out why is it that that story finds so many people who are moved. Um, and of course, working with Gary Ross was a big challenge because he comes to a project if he's written it with a full set of ideas about how it needs to be and how it wants to be. And the process of working with him is like kind of slowly chipping some of that away because designers work more like shaman. We walk around and we feel the spirits of things and you know, understand why this color wants to be in this set kind of by instinct. But writers and directors are often very different from that. They often have this need to impose their will on the world in a way that designers don't do. So when you're working with somebody who needs to impose his or her will on the world so thoroughly, it really is a process of kind of getting some of that to just melt away and accept that the world is what it is. Pleasantville, for example, that must have been a challenge in terms of moving from present day to sort of a hyper-reality, black and white, and then color streaming in. Well, that was um, all built, of course. There was nothing in that film except for the bowling alley, I think, that wasn't built. <laughs> um, and, yeah, I mean, I did it the old-fashioned way because I'm not someone who can learn from asking other people, how did you do this in the past? The only way I seem to be able to learn is to have a physical relationship myself with the material. And so I walked around with two very tiny cameras. And one had black and white film and one had color film. And I slowly learned by comparing the pictures how you had to design it to work both in color and in black and white. Because black and white is about contrast. And color is not about contrast, it's about different colors next to each other so your eye distinguishes you know, one place from the other. And it was a very, very interesting process because it's stuff that you read about and you learn and you're taught in design classes, but you don't really understand it until you understand it physically and viscerally. Mm -hmm. And you sit there and stare at it and you understand what the implications of it are going to be. Yeah, and then especially in that film where color is slowly leaking in with black and white and molding those two together. Right. Really fascinating. Yeah. Uh, another film that I, I love a lot that, that you worked with Curtis Hansen on is Wonder Boys. Yeah. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little about that. Because uh, 
know, well, great performance by Michael Douglas as well. Yeah. <laughs> well, the first thing I said to Curtis after I read that script was, Curtis, I think I've lived with this guy. <laughs> I understood who the guy was because I've dated so many men who are somehow like that. And I felt right away that I understood who that person was and got at sort of the humor of who that person was. And I thought that the story was ex extremely well told. It was painful, but funny at the same time, because the pain and the laughter lie really close together. But I think the best thing about that film in the end was what happened when it all came together with Bob Dylan's song because he really connected with the material in a personal and deep way. It wasn't just somebody who happened to be hired to do the music and he did a good job. He, you could tell that he emotionally connected to the material because what did he say? I, I used to care, but things have changed. Yeah. Won an Oscar, I believe, for that song. Mm, yep. <laughs> and it's a very powerful song and we all felt that somehow that same emotion in the course of making that project, although it wasn't set to music. I mean, we were making the film in Pittsburgh, which was a place way past its prime, waiting for its renaissance to begin. It hadn't really totally started back when we made the project. And about the writer who had been writing this book forever, and uh, they're like, okay, at a certain point, you just can't care anymore. Things have changed. You've changed. The world has changed. Everybody in the film is going through that emotion that Dylan was able to really connect with. And the first time I heard the song and saw it with the film, I thought, I'm going to cry. <laughs> this is exactly what we were all living through while making the film. Did Curtis uh, give him any direction before writing it, or did, did he just say, hey, you know, look at the movie and kind of have I don't know, because I wasn't party to that, but I'm sure that Curtis made a few simple but clear comments about what he felt and what he hoped for and what he wanted. Because when he talked to me about first doing L.A. Confidential, he said, well, it's a movie about how things are never what they seem. It's very simple. But you put that, you internalize that as a designer and you take it through the making of the whole film. What does it mean that things are never what they seem to be? I mean, for example, with the records department in the, uh, in the LA police um, station, the decorator and I made it seem as if it was a total mess, that it was a miracle that anybody could find anything there in that system. And while we were doing it, we thought, oh my God, you know, really, maybe we're exaggerating too much. Maybe we ought to make it a little neater and take it away. And then the shocking thing was a few years later, I actually got to go into the bowels of the LA Hall of Records and I looked at these pallets upon pallets upon pallets of shrink-wrapped boxes, and I went, 
oh my God, we should have exaggerated it even more. How does anybody find anything here? You know? <laughs> so it's like a case of, you know, reality and film kind of crossing at a certain point, yeah. you know? Well, speaking of uh, music and rules that apply, there's a song in there. I was wondering, did you uh, were you privy to that song? I believe that Warren had been working with the people on the, who who put that song together for many years before I arrived on the scene, or at least for a length of time before I arrived on the scene. Because as you know, Warren was pecking away at this project for what four decades, off and on. Uh, yeah, I believe like the late 1970s, so he's been at it for a while. But 40 plus yeah. years, <laughs> yes, definitely. And there were a lot of versions of the story, I'm sure, and a lot of uh, different people who came and went helping him as the process proceeded. So I myself worked on it for five years, off and on, of course. But five years is a very, very, very long time for a designer to be associated with any given project. Uh, so that's very unusual for you to... Extremely unusual. I mean, what ended up happening was I started working on it, and we worked on it for about nine months, and then one of the big investors kind of evaporated. And so Warren said to me, well, let's take a few weeks off then. Well, a few weeks turned into a few years, and I did some other projects in between. But I always felt that the project for me was like Tar Baby. You know, I'd hit it and I couldn't get stuck from it for a whole lot of reasons. Because I, I had designed maybe 75% of the project in my head before at the end of the first go-round, we'd found many of the locations, not all of them, but many of them. We'd been thinking about designing the sets and had ground plans pulled together. We had tons of research. So at that point, you sort of think, I can't give this up. This belongs to me, too, now. <laughs> it's a funny feeling. What um, what are you sort of the most proud of with Rules Don't Apply? What do you think it sort of exemplifies about your own style as a designer? Well, that I'm not sure about. My style as a designer, I'm going to let other people comment on my style as a designer. People say that they can see a film and know that it's mine, but I can't see that because, again, it's the forest versus the tree problem. You are who you are, and you work in the way you work and other people can recognize something about you that you can't recognize. But one of the most interesting processes in making rules don't apply is we had, of course, as everyone always says, limited time and limited money. God only knows what we would do if we had unlimited time <laughs> and unlimited money. But what we ended up doing was we knew we were shooting a sequence of hospital, desert inn, Acapulco hotel. And we somehow figured out that if we could just remodel them in sequence, if we could have enough time in the schedule between finishing the hospital set and shooting Desert Inn and finishing shooting Desert Inn and remodeling it to the Acapulco Hotel that we could pull that off. It was sometimes very frightening because the men at 
Warren would walk off the hospital set, the carpenters walked in right behind him and started disassembling the walls and reconfiguring it and painting it over and changing the floor materials. And we did that so that basically the hospital set turns into the desert and turns into the Acapulco Hotel. You're working within one soundstage. Within one soundstage for those things. Of course, they the shooting company would disappear to another soundstage to shoot other stuff while the construction and paint department, decorating department was working on that, that, those sets in sequence. But I actually remember waking up in the middle of one night and thinking, okay, we've almost finished the Acapulco Hotel. What happens if Warren wants to reshoot the hospital? Ah! <laughs> it's that panic of it's, you know, there's archaeology, and I won't get back to the original archaeology. I've destroyed it in the course of renewing the sets. Huh. So that was a, a, a funny process to have to think through. But it's a, it's a logistical process. It's the design process. It's like, how do we do this? the fastest and most efficient way possible. <laughs> uh, I was curious in, in that realm, how do you uh, delegate as a production designer? Do you, do you feel that's a very essential well, I part think, of the process? Yeah, it takes time to build up a team that you work happily and well with. Um, and then you have to just continue to you know, babysit the process. Um, I had a a lovely art director who I've done numbers of projects with, who I got along with very well. He's kind of like, we're kind of like brother and sister, and we know enough about each other now that we can second guess what we're going to think. And we need and like to make jokes and laugh through the process, because I don't want to be in the dark and the thick of it grouchy and angry about what happens in the course of making it. You have to keep a light heart and a funny spirit and you have to be able to laugh with your team and keep them going even when it's dark. And Nancy Haig, of course, was the decorator. She had done something with Warren previously and he remembered her. And when I discovered that she was available, I thought, well, hallelujah, because, you know, any director putting a team together wants to see a certain number of familiar faces that give him the comfort factor and a certain number of fresh faces because that's inevitable. And so Warren had had experience with Nancy before, which was wonderful. And he'd had experience with Albert Wolski, the costume designer before, which was also wonderful because they had some prior experience. I was, as I always said, the newbie. Um, although he knew that I had worked with Paul Silbert, who had designed Heaven Can Wait with him. Yeah, I think he won an Oscar. Uh, I think he might have. Yeah. <laughs> I think he might have. So Warren understood that I was from a familiar lineage. And I think that gave him a certain kind of comfort factor. Uh, well, lastly, um, in regards to Rules Don't Apply, I was wondering, what do you think makes Warren Beatty such a unique filmmaker, you know, such a legend in the, in the movie business? Um, God, that's really hard to answer because... 
Have you ever been inspired by his other films? Or well, I've seen all of his other films, and of course, when he called me to go meet with him to talk about him, you have the feeling that you are going to kiss the ring of the Hollywood royalty. And he's a man of immense charm, immense intelligence, immense power, and what makes him so good is his willingness to be critical of his own work and think it and rethink it and rethink it again. And sometimes you want to just rip it out from under him and say, Warren, stop! Because he has a remarkable ability to understand, understand himself. I mean, he always said to me, you know, I have to quote Jean Cocteau. A poem is never finished, merely abandoned. It's okay, Warren. Time to abandon this now. <laughs> um, so uh, it's, and I think that he produced a very unusual reading of Howard Hughes, and it goes back to my understanding of what motivated me to do the film, which is having a long, hard look at mentors and leaders and powerful men and what they do to the lives of people around them. Warren always says that Hughes drove everybody crazy. It was impossible to be around. Well, sometimes when we look, we look at ourselves. <laughs> you know? I mean, you know, there's, a, there's an overlap somehow between do you think Warren? Hughes and Warren. Yeah. And I don't think it's necessarily that Warren would have liked to have been Hughes. What Warren said to me once in a moment of amusing candor was, you know, maybe Hughes would have liked to have been me. Mm. And then at first I thought, what? And then I started thinking about it and I realized that that's possible especially in the light of the way he was interpreting the character. Because it's two guys very similar. Money and power. It, and charm. Yeah. It drags everyone in your direction. It's like the big magnet and all the pieces of metal come full toward it.